Well, how is everyone doing this morning? I just got to let you know, those of you up there, those of you on the sides, I did take a shower today. Everybody doesn't want, now the nice thing about here is, let me, do, I could bring it right here, and then all my introvert friends back here, you're, you'll be a right a part of this whole thing, right? See, this is the nice thing about being down on the floor. I can move around. And uh, I promised you, I took a shower this morning. <sighs> I thought it was just me. I hope it's not. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll get there in just a minute. 1 Timothy chapter 3. But before we do, I think everyone in this room... If you were to take a MRI, that they would find that you have this wonderful, awesome, super duper computer called a brain inside your head. Now I know if you had a picture of mine, you know, you probably have some sort of Star Wars movie going on upside here, and you know, if they would look at it. But you all have a brain. It's where we store information. It's where we retrieve information. That's called our memory. And sometimes our brains give out on us. We forget a lot, don't we? We forget what happened to us yesterday. We forget what happened last week. We get to somebody, we introduce ourselves, they tell us their name, and we leave them, and we turn around and say, hey, um, what was their name again? I can't remember. Hmm. Our brains are fascinating. They're better than any computer out there that Macintosh could ever invent. God did a remarkable job when he created our entire being. But sometimes we need to be reminded and reminded often of some of the things that we need to have and have in our daily lives, especially our spiritual things. And so throughout this series, that's why I'm trying to get you to do is to remember because repetition is good. We love to hear our names repeated over and over again. Why? Because our name is the sweetest sound in our ears. When a teacher finally has that student that has been um, struggling in their class, and then all of a sudden, if you've ever been a teacher and you've got a struggling student, and when that struggling student finally gets it, it's as though a light turns on and all that hard work that you have put into that student has paid off at that moment. You're thrilled that that has finally sunk into them. Well, Paul is giving some instructions to Timothy. And he also wanted to give Timothy all the tools that he needed to have necessary in order to do the task that he was going to be assigned in his ministry. He begins to give Timothy 
and tells Timothy that whenever truth abounds in your ministry, false teachings are going to raise their ugly heads. And Paul is concerned that Timothy should know how to deal with these things, as well as other things that are going to happen to him in the ministry. And so almost everything that Paul wants to, Timothy to learn is summed up in these verses that I'm going to talk to you about today, but specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And if you are there, look at it carefully in verse number 14. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 14. And the Bible says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress in the ESV, but buttress is the foundation. So God, that the church of the living God is a pillar and a foundation of truth. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will let my thoughts be your thoughts this morning as I try to convey to these people, these wonderful people, what you would have me to tell them this morning. I pray that their hearts and minds will be receptive to your word. I pray that as we leave this place that we will be renewed and refreshed in wanting to serve you more. I pray that for the next few minutes that you will give me the attention of these wonderful people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When I began to prepare this message, my, my intent was to go to 1 Timothy 4.12. This is where I wanted to focus on. But the Lord had some other things for me to focus on, as it were, because when I started to read the context of it, and I read, you know, 1 Timothy completely through, that one phrase stood out, and that phrase was, these things. In 1 Timothy alone, it is either said these things or it's implied more than eight times. We see in chapter 4 and verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 in chapter 4, command and teach these things. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to these things, the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. In verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them and all, that all, so that all may see your progress. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in these things, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Chapter 5 and 7 says, command these things, that they may be without reproach. Chapter 6 and verse 2 says, teach and urge these things. Chapter 6 and verse 11 says, pursue these things righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. However, I want to begin with chapter 1. Chapter 1, Timothy is told by the Apostle Paul to fight the good fight. We see in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 1, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and good conscience together. Faith on what you believe, good conscience, or having good moral values. Make sure that you have those two things when you engage in the fight. And that's what Paul wanted Timothy to do, was to keep engaged in the fight. We have too many Christians today that are like you go to uh, 
what is that place called now? It's like a hundred different names, but I think right now it's called Hard Rock Stadium. And when you go to Hard Rock Stadium, most people like in churches today, they're the ones that sit in the stands and they root those on who are on the battlefield. Christians do the same thing. There are the pastors and, and evangelists and, and missionaries all over this world, and we have church people sitting in their, their, their seats at church, and all they're doing is clapping their hands and you know, saying, hey, you're doing a great job. But they never want to get out on the battlefield. Those are the ones, however, that'll be the first ones to criticize you and what you're doing. And they're the ones that are on Monday in the stadium they're the, the armchair quarterback, as it were, telling, you know, the coach what he should and should not have done. All you got to do is turn on talk radio, and you listen to all these people that have all these tremendous ideas, except there's one problem with that. They aren't on the field. It's a whole nother ball game when you sit in stands and do nothing than it is when you're out on the battlefield and in the trenches. That's where the action takes place. And that's where most of you need to be. Paul is saying, keep, keep engaged in the fight. Because being in the ministry is hard work. Paul is telling Timothy that there's going to be times that you're going to want to quit the ministry. There's going to be times that you want to give up on the ministry. There's going to be times that you're going to want to walk away from the ministry. And he tells Timothy, when those times come, and they will come, Timothy... Don't quit. Don't quit. Stay engaged in the fight. And then the Apostle Paul in the first chapter says to Timothy, I want you not only to be engaged in the fight, but I want you to avoid shipwrecks in your life. Paul uses the term shipwreck because he had been through a shipwreck. He knew what it meant to be in a shipwreck. And what, Tim, uh, what Paul was trying to illustrate is that when you have a right belief, Timothy, when you have a right belief, in other words, knowing what you believe and why you believe it, and you have good moral values in your life, these two factors are going to stabilize your life as you go through life. But when you reject these two things in your life, your life will become unstable. And then you're thrown around by every wind of doctrine. You'll go this way or you'll go that way. And, Timothy, and Paul is telling Timothy, don't get involved in that. Know your right beliefs. Know what you believe and why you believe it and have good moral values in your life. Then he mentions two fellow believers. One by the name of Hymenaeus in verse 20 in verse chapter 1. Hymenaeus and Alexander are the two guys mentioned. Two believers here, but they had shipwrecked in their life. And what had happened to them, we don't know. The Bible does not tell us, but they, they were excommunicated from the church because they were spreading false doctrine and false belief. And Paul mentions two, those two by name specifically. They were mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, but right here they're excommunicated from the church. A lot of pastors today are out of the ministry. They're out of the ministry today because they've had shipwrecks in their life. 
They didn't know what they believed and why they believed it, and they, didn't have, they had very low moral standards in their life. It's sad when you see pastors on television that, you know, especially youth pastors, they seem to be the culprits because most of them are young. And so uh, these young youth pastors are going around, and then all of a sudden they say uh, that there was sex that they had within one of their teenagers. How sad. Because when you have low moral standards in your life, nothing really matters. And then they're out of the ministry. But there are a lot of pastors that are doing this. And Paul was telling Timothy, don't have this in your life. Don't make these grave mistakes that can cost you your entire ministry and everything you've done. Then we read in chapter 4. If you're there in chapter 4, look at verse number 1. It says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later, latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons uh, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God had created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrines that you have received and have followed. There is going to be what Paul wanted to tell Timothy there are going to be problems, and you need to point them out to other believers. It says, first of all, in the latter times. This is not the last days, although it could be. It could, it could uh, be relevant to the last times. But Paul is describing these events that, is, that could be happening real soon in Timothy's ministry. He, want, he warned him about the coming of false teachers and he said this on more than one occasion, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Acts chapter 20. Two occasions, Paul is talking about false teachers that are going to be creeping into the church. And if you read your Bible, they come in unaware. In other words, you don't know about it until it's too late. Paul said to Timothy, you've got to keep your guard up. You've got to see it when it happens. And you've got to approach it so that it doesn't come into the church. And Paul, needs to be, Paul wanted Timothy to be aware of these things because he mentions this next. He says this word that they are going to depart. That doesn't mean that they're going to leave. What it means is that they are going to create a revolt. You know, somebody says they're going to depart. No, they're going to create a revolt. Satan and his merry band of demons want to incite a revolt against Christians and Christianity. This is happening more and more and more today. Christians around the world are being persecuted. And what are we doing? We're sitting back and doing not much about it. If you talk about Jesus today in public, anywhere in public, it is now considered by some to even be hate speech. It's sad. 
when you can't even talk about Jesus in public. But then he tells Timothy that he needs them to devote him, that they are devoting themselves. These are talking about believers now. I want you to understand this. this is talking about believers. They are devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. There are other religions out there that will teach you that there is no God, but that you are God. If you get to this certain level, you will be just, you will be God. Well, that's nothing new. If you go all the way back to the beginning of time with Adam and Eve, and you had that old serpent, the devil, communicating with Eve and Adam. And what does he say to them? Back in Genesis 3, chapter 5, I mean, chapter 3 and verse 5, that if you eat of the fruit, your eyes are going to be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's concepts are not new. He's been around an awfully long time. He knows where your weaknesses are. And I'll get to that in just a few minutes because you've got to strengthen yourself. These people have no sense of right or wrong because they do not believe in any God. And when you don't believe in any God or you don't believe in God, you don't have any moral values and everything that you do will seem right in your own eyes. Just, see, just read Judges. And throughout the book of Judges, you will see constantly, and they did that which was right in their own eyes. Because they have no moral values. They don't have any belief system. We're seeing this today, especially with this abortion issue. Because that when you don't have any belief system, everything is okay for you to do. And that includes the killing of unborn, children, unborn babies, and now even newborn babies. We become so corrupt in our thinking because we have no moral values in our life. It's okay then to murder. It's okay then to steal. It's okay to break laws. It's okay to, you fill in the blank, whatever you want to say, it's okay. Because it's all right to do whatever you want to do. Paul is saying here, that these people have no consequences for their actions. Their conscience has been seared or it has been cauterized. Have any of you, I know this one right here has, have any of you ever had to have something cauterized in your body? There's one, two. My daughter has bloody noses. She, we went in early on when she was just a, a young child and all of a sudden her nose would bleed and we didn't understand why and we found this tremendous doctor yeah, I knew he was a tremendous doctor because we went in and everything in his office had Curious George there. That's how I know he was a good doctor. The only way he would be better is if he had Batman everywhere. But he had Curious George everywhere. And we went in there and he looked up and he just took this little light and he looked up at her nose. And because she hadn't, these nosebleeds were just gushing. We didn't know what to do. And he goes in and he looks at it, and the first words, I did not want to hear this, was, whoa. When a doctor who has seen everything goes, whoa, you get concerned. 
And he said all four of her capillaries in the nose are not under the skin, they're exposed. And when they, when they either you know, rub or, or she even blows her nose or anything else, it, it's like they're scraping off and it's just opening up those capillaries for the blood to come out. And so what he had to do, and he was a genius, he still is a genius at this, he would take this little dowel rod and he'd light the end of it and then he'd hide it. And then he'd say, okay now Olivia, let me take a look here real quick, all right? Oh, let me just... And he'd take that wooden stick that, had, that was burnt on the end of it and he would cauterize it. In other words, he was going to kill it so that it could, you know, blood couldn't come out of it for a while until the scab comes off and then he'd do it all over again. Then he said, finally, words that we wanted to hear, she might grow out of this one day. And it looks like she has. She's done a, she hasn't had too many of them lately. It's not been as often, but she still has them. But cauterized, you have to do it with something that's hot and burning because... In a sense, these people have no conscience because their consciousness has been seared and their consciousness is dead. So there is no right or wrong. Paul is saying that they no longer are able to fulfill their true function. They have become hardened. And he describes them as having lost all sensitivity. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, 19, he says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. These false teachers were telling lies before the believers. These lies included forbidding marriage. That's what they were teaching them. It's because the forbidding of marriage could never lead to a healthy society or a society that God had intended for it to be. Then the second one was even more radical. It says that you had to abstain from foods that God had considered good. They were saying that you cannot eat of these certain type of foods even though God had created them, even though God had said they were good, you're not allowed to eat them. Well, this was a Gnostic belief. Gnostics, if you understand them, believed that their religious leaders had received this higher truth. Have you heard that before? And that only a certain few of them had this special knowledge. And so they were the only ones that could teach this, and they could teach whatever heresy that they wanted to teach. Because the people were there, they didn't know any better and so they just listen and believe. It's happening in a lot of religions today. But verse 4, verse 4 gives us a fundamental principle that whatever God has created, it is good, period. If you find it out in the Bible and God says it's good, it's good. I always like it. You know, because everything God made was good. Just read Genesis. It was good. It lasts. There's nothing that, that, that hasn't been created that isn't good. Now, the fall of man has made some of this bad, but what God created was good. 
And so we sit back and we create the internal combustible engine that are in all the cars that you drive. And we say, man, these are great. They're awesome. They're spectacular. And a few years later, you have them in the shop because they break down. Every year, you look at those new cars and you drool over them and say, oh, if I just had that car, it would make my life so much better. Ten years down the road, it's a piece of junk. Twenty-five years down the road, it becomes a classic that you can no longer find parts for. But yet, we have to have it. What God says is good, is good. If man says it's great, watch out, because it's going to fall apart. It's not going to last you. We have to constantly be buying and buying and buying and buying and buying because these things don't last. But what God made lasts forever. Then we come to the point where Paul is saying that if you have these things, you hear these teachings, and they don't resonate, they don't ring true to you, to get them out of your life and stop believing them. There's a lot of them out there, but you have to know what you believe and why you believe it, or you're just going to be sucked into all of it. Then we come to the, these things in verse 6, of these things. This is where I want to focus on this morning. Paul now begins his personal directive to Timothy in sharing some of his own personal experiences. Wow, what would that have been like? That the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians of all time, was teaching you the things that he had learned. That's what Timothy was getting. Paul is the older He's more experienced in being a pastor. He's more experienced at being an evangelist. He's more experienced at being a church planner. Timothy is a young man. I kind of relate to Timothy. He's energetic, enthusiastic. He wants to constantly go, go, go without worrying about what the consequences are going to be. The Apostle Paul had to put some reins on him and says, all right, now, Timothy, you need to slow up a little bit. And you need to get these things. What does he mean? He means you need to practice these things so much in your life that they become second nature to you. Second nature. They are, as it were, a habit. Psychologists have said that anything that you do 30 times in a row will become a habit. Health gyms all across this country are banking on that. They know January 1st, you're in their club. They know you will not more than likely last through January before you start becoming sporadic. And then you've signed a contract that, you're gonna, that you have to pay every month for the next two to three years. Hmm. They bank on that. Timothy, Paul is saying, listen, put these things into practice in your life that they are second nature to you. 
And once you have them in your life and they have become a habit in your life, then I want you to point them out to your congregation. I want you to have them in your life first, Timothy, then give them to your congregation. What Paul is trying to illustrate to Timothy is this. Once you get these things and you point them to the congregation, it's as though they're walking on treacherous ground in their life. It's slippery. It's muddy. And what you are doing is putting these stones on the ground as they are walking and as they are moving along in this thing called life. And you're putting these stones, these foundations, so that when they step on them, it gives them sure footing. I don't know about you. I love to walk trails. I love to walk trails. And there are times that I've been on many trails that it has just rained. And I'm trying to go up a hill, and all of a sudden my foot slips out, and I go down on the ground. And I've learned that I want to get, if I need to get up this hill, i got to find something that's going to cause me not to slip. And that's what Paul is trying to tell Timothy. You give these things to your people, and if they begin to apply them to their life, as they go through life, they're not going to slip and fall. But what are these things? First of all, he said to reject, I love this, old wives' tales. We've all heard these things before. These wives' tales, these beliefs that if you just do this, you know, especially... Some of you are guilty of this. When, you know, some of us get sick in the church, you have your old grandmother's or great-grandmother's recipe for the cure. You have it. You mix this concoction up, you give it to us, and you say, if you would just take this, you would be better off. You'll get better in no time. And you take, we take that stuff and it smells horrible. And we take it in anticipation that because you, it worked for you that it was going to work for us. And it just made me worse. I love you, but no. I hate when I get sick and I have to take Buckley's. I'm sick. It's rare. When I have to get to that point, I'm sick. I think when I take Buckley's that I, uh, you know, it's Christmas because of the pine that is in Buckley's. And you take that and it, you feel the burn all the way down. I don't know if it works or not. I put it in my head that it does because I'm really that sick. But we've got to reject these wives' tales. Or in other words, we've got to reject the things that are not true. We got to reject the things we are that are not true. Well, how do you reject things that are not true? The only way you can reject things that are not true is that is if you know what you believe and why you believe it. Paul E. Little has a great book on that. Know what you believe and why you believe it. What you believe is one book, why you believe it is another book. Tremendous books. But we've got to reject those things that are not true. These but because we have to have in our lives these fundamental truths. These are our confessions of faith. It's what we used to say at the end of every Lord's Supper. And maybe we need to get back to them. 
to get to say what we actually believe in so you know what you believe in. What do you believe about God? What do you, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? What do you believe about the Holy Spirit? What do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? What do you believe about the church? What do you believe about salvation? Over the years, we have had many, many people say, I want to come and be baptized. And I asked them a simple question. When were you saved? When did you become a Christian? And they have no idea. They have no idea. They don't know what it means. Now, that gives me a tremendous opportunity to witness to them, but they have no idea what it means to be saved, what it means to be a Christian. When did you accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? They have no idea. But we need to know these things. These are things that everyone should know because if you don't know what you believe and why you believe it, you are susceptible to all of these other false teachings. I noticed on Friday, I was watching a news channel and it had this headline, ISIS recruiting young educated millennials. They want, ISIS is in America right now recruiting educated millennials, but here's the little key that they want, who are not well-versed in religious knowledge. In other words, they're looking for people who do not know what they believe and do not know why they believe it. Because they want to train them and get, uh, train them into their philosophy, and they want to teach them their fundamental truths. Have we as a church failed to teach these things? Have we as parents failed to teach our children these things? Are we just bringing our kids to church and say, hopefully our church will let them know about these things so that I don't have to do it? So when Paul brought up to Timothy... He was telling Timothy about these truths of the faith in verse 6, that this is a continuous process in your life. He is telling Timothy that there is no better way to have this spiritual nourishment than to be constantly dwelling on these great truths of the faith. He was telling Timothy that if you focus on these things and you quit focusing on things that don't matter, in other words, Timothy, Paul's telling Timothy, Timothy, get rid of the stuff that doesn't matter in your life because you're wasting your time. And begin to focus on the things that are going to be important to you for eternity. So how can we focus on this spiritual nourishment that we get from these truths? Well, first of all, we've got to be faithful to church. We've got to be more faithful to church. We've got to quit letting our outside activities causing us to miss church. Your children's uh, extracurricular things. Notice something, folks. They will always do it on Sunday or Wednesday. Always. And it doesn't matter. And you say to yourself, I know, they only have this one Sunday event. Well, then that one Sunday event becomes two, then it becomes three, 
And then all of a sudden, we're missing church after church service after church service after church service. And then we wonder why things happen in our lives. And we don't have the foundation because we're not here. You need to be here. You need to put down some roots. We've heard it before. Church members are just here. They're swapping and going to another church. They're like a bunch of ficus trees. A ficus tree has root. Has, it looks sturdy. It looks strong. It's got a big old trunk on it. It's got roots that go out to the side. And when a 20-mile-an-hour wind happens here in South Florida, it goes, boop, just topples over because it doesn't have any deep roots. We need to have church people that are like oak trees. Oak trees, their roots go way, way down deep. In fact, if you look at a the, the height of an oak tree, the roots are that deep in the ground. And that's what we need out of church members today. We quit swapping churches, and we need them to get in and focus and stay in that church. Get involved in that church. Get involved in the services. Get involved in serving. There's a lot to do. Then we have to have our personal quiet time with God every day. Personal quiet time. If you're like my household, it's very rare to have a quiet in our house. There's always something going on, especially with two girls. That is why I have to get up at 5.30 in the morning. I have to get up at 5.30, have my quiet time, then go for my 5K walk, and then come back, and then by that time, my wife is usually up having her quiet time. We need to have that quiet time so that we can focus on what God has for us. It doesn't mean get up, put your earbuds in, get some music on, and then try to read God's word while you're having all these extra things going on. It means quiet, focus, that time between you and God. You need to read some really good books on biblical doctrine. doctrine sorry. You need to attend that some of these classes that we've had, theology classes, pastor's classes, the things that we've had and that we are going to reinstate. You need to be here for these things to learn about God's word. You need to be here on Wednesday night too. I know Johan is doing a tremendous job here teaching the book of Colossians because there's so much in the word of God that your entire lifetime you will not be able to grasp a hold of it all. But you need to be here. You need to train yourself to be godly. The Apostle Paul, I believe, had some sort of athletic background because he uses these athletic terms throughout his writings in, the, in his books. He turns to this athletic term called train to make his point. And his point is this. He wants to compare the physical and spiritual training in your life. In my weight room, I have this sign up in my weight room in this verse. It says, in Hebrews chapter 1, I mean chapter 12, verse 11. No discipline. Now, discipline is that training that molds your character. It's that training. It could be physical training. It could be spiritual training. It molds your characters. It says no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, I love this part, Strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. All of us need to get into some sort of spiritual weight room. 
I tell our guys that are up there, they all want to do, uh, you know, this massive stuff the entire time. They want to try to lift as hard as they can, as much as they can, and I say, you're going about it the wrong way. What you need to do is start out very simple so that when you leave the weight room, you feel like you haven't done a whole lot. That's not the point. The point is for you to gradually get yourself stronger so that when you get to the point that you have out here, your goal, when you look back, you say, man, I was really weak back then. Same thing true in your spiritual life. You need to get started to do something. Don't go and try to read the entire book of Psalms in one day. Start out small in comparison to things that you haven't done anything in your personal devotions so that years from now you look back and you say, man, I did all that, that's awesome. My strength is, is stronger spiritually because of what I'm doing in my own personal quiet time. Paul recognizes, however, that bodily exercise doesn't do very much, does very little, it's very limited. But godliness has a dual benefit. It has promises for this life, and it has promises for the life to come. The Christian can truly say they can have the best of both worlds. They can have the best now, and they can have the best later. Then we come finally to verse 10, where the Apostle Paul translates a word, a specific word called labor. What that word labor in verse number 10 deals with is extremely hard work. He uses this in looking close in Philippians chapter 2. Verse number 16, Paul says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What this word labor means is athletic fatigue. It means total exhaustion. And that when you get to the point of your life that you are totally exhausted, Paul then says you've got to motivate yourself to keep on going just one step more. The race for godliness demands every ounce of energy that a person possesses without quitting. You've heard it say of somebody, well, they gave 110%. I'm sure you've heard that. They gave 110%. That's impossible. Because it's the most that you can give is 100%. That's all you have to give. Well, we say, oh, they gave 110%. But you look at those people uh, you say they gave it 100% because you, you're literally just saying to them, they went above and beyond what they were capable of doing. But they can do more. That's the whole point. When I was bench pressing in my uh, competitive days, I had a chart that when I finished this one routine every 10 weeks, it was a 10-week routine, that at the end of those 10 weeks, I put on five more pounds to re-max myself out, to make myself stronger. Five pounds only. And every 10 weeks, I would do that. And then I would be competitive. I would compete. And I'd find out that I would get stronger and stronger and stronger. It made me feel good that I was getting stronger. 
that I thought I had given everything that I had had. And 10 weeks later, guess what? I could give just a little bit more. Same is true in your life, your spiritual life. It is implying here in this verse that you are in a continuous state of hope. That we have put our hope in the true and living God. I love that old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The idea is this of an ongoing and certain hope that is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. I read it last week at our dear brother Henry Sapp's funeral. And it says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. The Savior of all mankind is our certain hope. We sang about that this morning. Timothy was to earn the respect of his congregation, his future congregation, with these things. And I want to remind you in closing those things that we need to look at. He says in verse 6, to put those things before others, to command and teach these things to devote himself to these things, to practice these things, to keep these things, to persist in these things. Every one of you this morning ought to have these things in your life in order to earn the trust of others, but especially, and we'll see this next week, especially of the non-Christian. So what are these things again? Reject false teaching and doctrine. Train yourself to be godly. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue faithfulness. Pursue gentleness. Are you putting these things in your life? If not, today is a good time to start. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word will now go forth and accomplish that which pleases you. Father, I pray that if there is someone here in this auditorium that does not know you as their own personal Lord and Savior, I pray that they will seek me out, that I may be able to show them through your wonderful, precious word how to become a Christian. And Father, I pray for those this morning that are in this auditorium that need to just get started. Help them to do just that. Help each and every one of us to strengthen ourselves spiritually. Help us to all know what we believe and why we believe it. So that when false teaching comes around, oh God, that we'll be able to handle it. Bless this church. Bless these people. Let us do a wonderful work for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.